Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I want to give a special shout out and thank you to all of the donors who make this podcast possible at ParadoxGiving.com. Today we are opening the book of 2 Chronicles and this teaching and episode is entitled Solomon's Legacy. Today we will be looking closely at Solomon, who many consider to be Israel's wisest king through the biblical writings of Chronicles. Solomon's story begins in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. So if you have your Bible with you at home, I invite you to turn with me to that chapter. Right before we meet Solomon, the narrator informs us that King David has gathered all of the building materials necessary for the impending construction of the temple. We then read, David called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. For this teaching, I want to invite all of you to imagine the life of Solomon as a movie directed by the author of Chronicles. Imagine sitting in a movie theater, I know, I miss going to movies too, and watching the previews wind down. The theater gets a little darker, the music begins to play, And there is an opening shot of a young teenage boy, Solomon, navigating his way through an elaborate palace. Solomon arrives at his elderly father's bedside. David is frail and close to death. And with labored breath, David gently says, My son, my dying wish for you is that I want you to build the most magnificent temple to our God. If you watched this movie, you would immediately know that the entire movie is going to be about Solomon's relationship to building that temple. Within seconds, you know that Solomon's entire destiny is tied to the temple, and the director is going to tell us the story of how the temple came into being or how Solomon failed. That's what the author of Chronicles wants you to experience in this opening scene of Solomon's life. According to the author, Solomon's central purpose and calling is to build the temple in Jerusalem and to ensure that it is a magnificent structure. The next scene takes place in chapter 23 of 1 Chronicles. We read, When David was old and full of days, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. We can imagine a scene where a crown is being held by shaky and weathered hands as it is lowered onto Solomon's hair. As soon as the crown rests, the assembled crowd at the coronation erupts with cheers and hallelujahs as they begin to chant, Long live King Solomon. The next scene unfolds at a funeral as a large crowd gathers around David's casket, dressed in black, with heads bowed in reverence. The author of Chronicles describes it this way, David died at a good old age, full of days, riches, and honor, and his son Solomon succeeded him. That very evening, the next scene unfolds with Solomon lying in bed when he receives a visit from God. God says to Solomon, ask what I should give you. Solomon pauses, for he is in the presence of the divine. After some time, he whispers, grant me wisdom and knowledge. This answer brings great relief to the God character in this story. God is so elated at Solomon's request that she promises to give wisdom and knowledge to Solomon as well 
as a mountain of cash. In this film that we are imagining, we begin to see a montage of wealth being accumulated. We see chariots being built. We see righteous judgments being executed by the king. And we see the economy flourishing. The author of Chronicles writes about it this way. He says, The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephela. The montage winds down and the music cuts into silence as Solomon is standing on top of Mount Moriah as the sun is setting over the horizon. He's quiet. He's deep in thought. He looks a bit nervous. Here is where his father asked him to build the temple to God. And his builders will break ground for the first time tomorrow at dawn. Solomon knows that a strong economy is nice, that the reputation of his wisdom is something to be celebrated, but he has a sense that this building that begins tomorrow will ultimately define his legacy for generations to come. Solomon is consumed with a passion to build the most magnificent structure the world has ever seen. This was his father's dying wish. And then we see Solomon leave Mount Moriah in silence. The next morning and several scenes are filled with shots of construction and the seemingly endless stream of decisions that need to be made whenever a building is being erected. We see masons and metal workers and artisans painstakingly giving themselves to the craft. Until finally, we read, thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. Solomon brought in the things that his father David had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. The temple is completed. The architecture is unlike anything the people have seen before. In this imaginary film, there is a crowd of people standing in awe of this structure. There is a silence and a reverence that falls over the crowd. But that silence is broken by a distant horn. This horn is from the priests. They are moving the ark, which is believed to be the very throne of God, from its temporary resting place into this new temple, where they believe it will reside with the nation of Israel for what they assume will be eternity. The nation of Israel begins cheering as the priests carefully bring the ark into the temple, past the holy place, and into the most holy place. Ever so gently, the priests lower the ark onto the ground. The priests then walk outside to loud shouts, praises, and singing. We read in the Bible, the temple was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. This thick cloud descends from the skies and enters into the temple, a sign of God's presence that harkens back to the days of Exodus. As our film continues, the people of Jerusalem are losing their minds. They just watched as the throne of God was triumphantly brought into its permanent home and a cloud from the sky swiftly and intentionally moved into their new temple. After the cloud enters the temple, Solomon stands up. He seems so tall now in this movie. 
And with a commanding voice, he declares, The Lord has said that he would reside in thick darkness. I have built you an exalted house, a place for you, O God, to reside in forever. The nation erupts with cheers. After the cheering subsides, Solomon bows his head and prays a lengthy prayer of dedication. We see several shots of a massive crowd, but they are standing still and in utter silence. As soon as Solomon ends his prayer, fire falls from the sky with a deep rumbling from the subwoofers and lands on the carcass of an animal lying on the altar in front of the temple. I mean, can't I get an amen? If we saw this in our imaginary movie, the director would just probably have everyone fall over at this point. People can't cheer anymore. They can't process this anymore. They can't fathom what reality is anymore. And as some wise mystics might say, they literally can't even anymore. I mean, fire fell down from the sky and lit the nation's offering on fire. How do you top that? This needs to be the end of our imaginary movie. In Chronicles, there are two chapters after the heavenly fire, but these chapters serve as a denouement. We read about how Solomon builds more wealth and power in these two chapters, and how other nations come to recognize the wisdom, might, and economy of Israel. But then at the end of chapter 9, we read this closing statement. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all of Israel for 40 years. Solomon slept with his ancestors, was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam succeeded him. Our imaginary film definitely ends with the fire from heaven crackling in the background over the carcass of an animal, as Morgan Freeman reads that last verse that I just read on the death of Solomon. As Morgan Freeman is reading those words, Solomon looks with a satisfied smile at the temple, and at those last words, as they come to a close, the film fades to black and the words directed by the author of Chronicles appear on the screen. This imaginary movie is the life of Solomon that the author of Chronicles wants us to see. A man who existed to fulfill his father's dying wish, who received copious amounts of wisdom by God primarily to build the temple. A man who never wavered in his direction. A man who simply obeyed and remained wholly devoted to God. God rewarded that devotion with a life and legacy that Israel can still celebrate today by participating in worship at the temple. Which is why the next four verses, after our imaginary movie ends, after Solomon's death in the text, is such a jarring detour that none of us could see coming. Second Chronicles chapter 10, verse 1 to 4 reads, Solomon's son Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make Rehoboam king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. We keep reading, they sent and called Rehoboam, and Jeroboam and all Israel came and said to Rehoboam. This is surprising because Rehoboam is the new king, but Jeroboam is confronting him with, quotes, all of Israel. People are not happy in the land of Israel. 
Jeroboam then says to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke that he placed on us, and we will serve you. This is a moment in Israelite history. Jeroboam, with all of Israel behind him, challenges the brand new king Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the man who just built the temple and by all accounts made everyone rich, powerful, and happy. And he challenges him by saying, your father made our yoke heavy. This is a stunning turn of events. In the book of 2 Chronicles, we read about the nation coming together to build the temple of the Lord. There is exhaustive detail about the craftsmanship of this place of worship. We don't read about any grumblings or any people being upset about this building project. And then Solomon dies, and there is a massive revolt led by a man named Jeroboam that tells the new king, Rehoboam, we've had enough. We don't want this anymore. Please, please, Rehoboam, don't be like your father. What happened? Why are the people so mad? Why do the people revolt when the economy is booming? We scour over the previous nine chapters to see what exactly we missed. Is there any clue that Solomon made the Israelites' yoke heavy? Well, reading through 2 Chronicles 1-9, it's hard to find anything that Solomon did that might be considered wrong or immoral. Except for one thing, and it's only mentioned in one verse. After the fire fell from heaven and blessed the completed construction of the temple, in those last two chapters of Solomon's life that serve as a denouement, the author of Chronicles writes in chapter 8, all the people who were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of Israel, from their descendants who were still left in the land whom the people of Israel had not destroyed, these Solomon conscripted for forced labor, as is still the case today. Forced labor is slavery. Solomon enslaved human beings. Solomon shackled breathing men and strong women into bondage and forced these men and women to work without pay. This is a really big deal. The nation of Israel, whose story begins in the book of Exodus as slaves under the boot of the Egyptian empire, has forgotten who they are. Their testimony is, we were oppressed, but God heard our prayers, and with a mighty hand, God delivered us from slavery. And now Solomon, being the head of a nation who has empirical dreams, decides that the best road to wealth and prosperity and an eye-popping temple is to enslave Jebusite human beings. He needs to enslave those Jebusites in the same way that Egypt enslaved Israelites a very long time ago. If this makes you uncomfortable, I want you to know that I am uncomfortable too. How is it that Solomon can be so wise if he enslaves men and women? The author of Chronicles senses our discomfort, so he immediately reassures us with the next verse after he reveals Solomon's slavery. He writes, But of the people of Israel, 
Solomon made no slaves for his work. They were soldiers and his officers, the commanders of his chariotry and cavalry. The author attempts to comfort us by saying, look, Solomon enslaved people, but he didn't enslave our people, so this slavery wasn't really that bad. The author also holds a religious justification for pointing this detail out. All the way back in the book of Leviticus, we find the story of God speaking directly to Moses shortly after God liberated the Israelites. And God is giving the law by which this new nation of Israel shall be governed. According to Leviticus, God says, As for the male and female slaves who you may have, it is from the nations around you that you may acquire male and female slaves. You may also acquire them from among the aliens residing with you and from their families that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may keep them as a possession for your children after you, for them to inherit as property. These you may treat as slaves, but as for your fellow Israelites, no one shall rule over the other with harshness. In the Bible, you have God, the all-powerful creator and moral compass of the universe, telling Moses that slavery is moral as long as you don't enslave your own people. Which raises the question, is slavery moral as long as you don't enslave your own people? This is an important question to ask, and so I would like to do a deep dive into the history of this question to discern where God is leading us today. So here we go on a deep dive. Get comfortable, because we are going to answer the question, is slavery moral as long as you don't enslave your own people? Are you ready for the deep dive? Because here it goes. The answer to this question is no. And the deep dive is over. Now, you may be quick to say, Craig, you can't just say that slavery is always immoral. These are the very words of God in the Holy Bible. Who are you to challenge God? I am happy to challenge God on this point of slavery. And the reason I'm happy to challenge God is because I am a traditionalist. And our religious tradition is filled with people arguing with God. Abraham argued with God at Sodom that God should be more merciful, and Abraham won that argument. Moses argued with God at Mount Sinai that God should be more merciful, and Moses won that argument. Hezekiah argued with God at Jerusalem that God should be more merciful, and Hezekiah won that argument. Mary, the mother of Jesus, argued with God at Cana that God should be more merciful, miraculous, and just give these wedding guests some more wine. And Mary won that argument. So when God is recorded as saying slavery is moral as long as you don't enslave your own people, we actually honor the religious tradition by standing before God and saying, mm, no, I don't think so, God. Because slavery is always wrong. Slavery was wrong when the Egyptians enslaved the children of Israel. Slavery was wrong when God spoke to Moses from the tabernacle. Slavery was wrong when Solomon built the temple. Slavery was wrong in 1619 when the first slaves from Africa arrived on the shores of America. 
Slavery was wrong when the Atlantic slave trade shut down and Americans decided it was okay to continue to own slaves as long as they were born into slavery. And slavery is still wrong today when we outsource our slavery to other countries. Human beings do not exist to be owned. Instead, we exist to be free. And slavery is the desecration of the image of God found in each of us. Returning to the story of Solomon, the author of Chronicles casually slips in the fact that Solomon enslaved people and attempts to dismiss it by saying it's an acceptable form of slavery. The author then quickly moves on, hoping we will forget about slavery and just enjoy the temple. But Chronicles is not the full story of the life of Solomon. There are two historical accounts of Solomon's reign in the Bible. Today we have told the story of Solomon entirely from the perspective of Chronicles. But 1 Kings also tells the story of Solomon. And the Solomon we meet in 1 Kings is vastly different than the Solomon that we know in 2 Chronicles. There is great wisdom in understanding why these histories portray Solomon in very different lights. The first history is found in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. The consensus among scholars today is that these four books were written by the same author or authors during the 6th century BCE. This date is significant because these writings originate after the Babylonians attack and conquer Jerusalem in 586 BCE. The Babylonians capture a large contingent of survivors from Jerusalem, drag them back to Babylon, and then force them to live in exile. Either in exile or shortly after exile, the demoralized people of Judah begin to write their history that would eventually become Samuel and Kings. But the people of Israel, like all people, do not write their history in a vacuum. Instead, they write their history from the perspective of exile. And this perspective colors the way they process and perceive their past events. In exile, the pressing theological question that hung over everything was, how did we end up in Babylonian exile? Prior to exile, the people of Judah believed that their God was the all-powerful creator of the entire universe. And no matter how dark, scary, or treacherous their world became, they could believe that God would deliver them from evil. But that belief came crashing down when Babylon marched in and defeated them in battle. In exile, the very floor of Judah's faith dropped out from under them. So this theological question, how did we end up in exile, is an earnest question. This is the question that shapes, molds, and informs the history that is recorded in Samuel and Kings. The conclusion or the answer that the writers give to this question is that God did not abandon us. Instead, we deserved this exile. This is where the first history of the Bible in Samuel and Kings comes from. Five decades later, Cyrus the Great from Persia attacks and conquers Babylon. He then sends the Jews back to Jerusalem and even gives them money to rebuild their temple. Yes, that same temple that was destroyed earlier by the Babylonians, which was the temple that Solomon built. This second temple is completed in 517 BCE. About 150 years after the second temple is rebuilt, or 200 years after the books of Samuel and Kings are written, the people of Judah are living in a very different life 
and a very different time than when they were writing their history 200 years prior. They have the reconstructed temple. They are living in what they believe is the promised land, but they are still paying heavy taxes to Persia and they do not have a descendant of King David on the throne. Life is fine, but there is a collective awareness that things should be better for the people of God. And that awareness leads to the pressing theological question of Judah in the 4th century BCE, which is, are we still the people of God? To answer that question, the author of Chronicles rewrites their entire history, and that rewriting of history eventually becomes 1st and 2nd Chronicles. To answer the question, are we still the people of God, Chronicles answers by saying, yes, we are still the people of God because we have the temple. This is where the second history of the Bible in Chronicles comes from. We have two vastly different versions of history in the Bible because they are from two vastly different time periods and they are asking two vastly different questions. And when we consider their vastly different conclusions, we can see how Samuel and Kings wants us to see the sins of Judah and Judah's kings in order to justify exile. But we can also see how the author of Chronicles wants us to see the goodness of Judah and the temple and the people who built it in order to justify religion. The author of Chronicles possesses a clear agenda. They want their readers to believe that the temple is a moral and good institution. So the author glosses over the sins of the temple's founding fathers, David and Solomon, because they want their readers to believe that the temple was built by the most altruistic people with the most moral convictions. This is why I wanted you to imagine the story of Solomon in Chronicles as a film. Because that film that we imagined it would be incredibly boring, right? The story is that David asks Solomon to build the temple, Solomon builds the temple, and God approves. That's not a compelling story. Instead, it's religious propaganda. And the best way that I can describe Chronicles to you is historical religious propaganda. Dr. John J. Collins from Yale Divinity School writes, Chronicles describes history as the author thought it should have been. Chronicles is not a reliable source for historical information about pre-exilic Israel or Judah. In other words, Chronicles is not history. Chronicles is propaganda. And while some may dismiss Chronicles entirely, I believe there is wisdom that we can gain from comparing the propaganda of Chronicles to the history of Kings. Because Chronicles barely mentions that Solomon enslaved people. But 1 Kings 5.13 reads, King Solomon conscripted forced labor out of all of Israel. The levy numbered 30,000 men. This is a major contradiction between Kings and Chronicles. Chronicles testifies that Solomon did not enslave his own people, but the book of Kings tells us that Solomon enslaved the children of Israel to build a temple to God who freed the children of Israel from slavery. No wonder that after Solomon's death, Jeroboam, 
leads all the assembly of Israel before the new king Rehoboam and demands, Your father made our yoke heavy, Rehoboam. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke that he placed on us, and we will serve you. Jeroboam leads all of Israel in protest before the new king. This massive protest demands that Rehoboam act as a king in an entirely different manner than his father. Now, both Chronicles and Kings are nearly identical in the reporting of what happens next with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. According to both accounts, Rehoboam decides to respond to Jeroboam's request by asking for more time. Rehoboam then takes three days to decide whether or not he's on board or against slavery and then returns to Jerusalem with an answer. And before all of Israel, he looks Jeroboam right in the eye and he tells him, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. In other words, Rehoboam tells Jeroboam, you thought my father was bad. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Both Chronicles and Kings tells us that the people of Israel return to their tents. The next morning, Rehoboam sends a man named Hadoram, his chief slave master, to go to the tents of Israel and reestablish the institution of slavery over them. But when Hadoram shows up to enslave the people of Israel, they revolt. You know, because they don't want to be slaves. In their revolt, they murder Hadaram. This murder is the official declaration of rebellion. And from this moment forward, the nation of Israel, days after the death of Solomon, goes from one nation to two separate nations. The southern kingdom, Judah, is where Jerusalem is and where Rehoboam sits on the throne. Judah is composed of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom Israel is composed of the remaining tribes. This northern kingdom crowns Jeroboam as their first king and establishes the city Samaria as their capital city. And for the next 200 years, there are civil wars, uneasy alliances, shocking betrayals, until finally the northern kingdom of Israel is wiped out by the Assyrians in 722 BCE. As hard as this may be to believe, 3,000 years ago, the nation of Israel split into two nations and fought a civil war primarily over the issue of slavery. The southern nation of Judah believed that God ordained this practice of slavery, while the northern nation of Israel believed that God condemned the institution of slavery. The author of Kings records this anti-slavery rebellion from the perspective of the pro-slavery southern kingdom of Judah. And 200 years later, the author of Chronicles comes along with an agenda of religious propaganda. He decides that Solomon enslaving his own people to build a temple is problematic, so he completely deletes this slavery from the narrative. This is wild, because the author of Chronicles omits the reason for Jeroboam's rebellion while simultaneously recording Jeroboam's rebellion and somehow labels it as history. <laughs> 700 years after the life of Solomon, the author of Chronicles drastically minimized the historical sins of Solomon's slavery 
so the people of Judah could feel better about their history. Why did the author do this? Because the author of Chronicles desires to motivate his readers to go to the temple, to worship, to pray, to offer sacrifices, and to pay the temple tax or tithe. And the whole history of slavery that is tied to the temple complicates all of that. It puts it all in jeopardy. So rather than confronting the sin of slavery, the author of Chronicles omits slavery so that people can worship at the temple with a clear conscience. And this is why propaganda is ultimately a tragic endeavor. The author of Chronicles believed it was more important to protect the reputation of religion than to dismantle the sin of slavery. 3,000 years after the life of Solomon, or 2,300 years after the author of Chronicles, there is great wisdom that we must learn in the year 2020. Because right now in America, we are having a difficult time deciding how we are going to tell the story of our nation. In the United States of America, our past, our economy, and our power structures are all deeply entangled with a long and sordid history of the sin of slavery. The best book I have read in 2020 is called The Color of Compromise by a man named Jamar Tisby. This book is about the history of the church in America and its relationship to racism. In the first chapter of this book, he lays out the findings of his research in his thesis. He writes, historically speaking, when faced with the choice between racism and equality, the American church has tended to practice a complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity. They chose comfort over constructive conflict and in so doing created and maintained a status quo of injustice. Now, when I hear that line, I have to pause and say, wait a second, is Jamar Tisby talking about the history of America or the book of Chronicles? Because the answer to that question is yes. It's the same story. It's the same sin. It's the same tragedy. We have failed to learn from the sins of our past, from the sins of our religion, and even the sins of our scripture. Here in America today, whenever white Christians protect the reputation of America or defend the reputation of the church, instead of dismantling the sin of racism, then we commit the same sin over and over again of the author of Chronicles. This is the wisdom to be gained in the bizarre and tragic story of the omission of Solomon's sins in Chronicles. In The Color of Compromise, Jamar Tisby tells the origin story of the Southern Baptist Church. Now, not many Americans know this, but the Southern Baptist Church split off from the Baptist General Convention in 1845 to preserve the institution of slavery. The first president of the Southern Baptist Church, William Boulain Johnson, explained the reason for this separation. He writes, these northern brethren thus acted upon a sentiment they had failed to prove that slavery is, in all circumstances, sinful. Johnson believed that some forms of slavery was evil, but not all forms. He believed that one could own slaves as long as they did not own their own people, much like that difficult law in Leviticus. Johnson did not stand alone in this belief. 
Many white Christians in America argue that slavery was moral because the Bible makes no explicit condemnation of slavery. In fact, the Bible provides several protocols and guidelines to ensure that slavery is moral. By the way, all of this is true to this day. The Bible does not explicitly condemn slavery. In fact, there are far more verses in the Bible that condone slavery than verses that condemn same-sex sexual activity. I tell you all of this because the author of Chronicles had a choice to make. Do I protect the reputation of the temple or do I dismantle the sin of slavery? He chose to protect the temple. And his choice to protect the reputation of religion had dire consequences millenniums after he penned his words. While I do not believe that the author of Chronicles would have conquered white supremacy had he chosen to dismantle slavery, I believe he could have made it much more difficult for white supremacy to thrive in America if he chose to write an entire book condemning the practice of slavery rather than the propaganda he chose in the book of Chronicles. We need to stop committing the same sin that he committed so long ago. Here in America today, the wisdom of the book of Chronicles teaches us that we grow closer to God by including our past sins and not omitting them. I understand that this idea feels wrong, it feels backwards, and it feels out of place. But may I remind you that this message is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this gospel, Jesus does not meet people at the temple with sacrifices and priests and titles and scripture. No, Jesus Christ meets people in their brokenness. He eats with sinners. He blesses those who are cursed. He finds people at their lowest moment and declares that those moments are holy. And when we consider that we can grow closer to God by including our past sins rather than omitting them, it reminds us of the counterintuitive pronouncement of the gospel, that God meets us when we include our sins rather than pretending that our sins don't exist. As horrific and terrible as slavery is, I believe that we can learn something from its omission in Chronicles. Every failure can be our teacher. From the massive moral failure of Solomon, we must learn that we should never prioritize the reputation of a nation, a religion, or ourselves over the sins of slavery and racism. And if we have the courage to include our sins and failures in the story we tell others and the story we tell to ourselves, then we grow dramatically in love and follow in the footsteps of God. May we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, even in our failures. Thank you.